0: Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the J. Berg Wilk Learning Series for 2017-2018. I am Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemidrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program.
1: So in some sense, this book is the product of living in the life, living in the world as a Jew for my entire life. Uh, I went to 13 years of Jewish day schools and went to 10 summers at overnight camp and studied in seminaries, Yeshivot, and eventually in 2007, ended up at a Jesuit Catholic school. um, Tasked with, my first task was to teach an intro to Judaism course. I'd been in the world of education for roughly 15, 20 years at that point, but 16 weeks, five to six hours a week is kind of a daunting task to put together a course, if you, if you take it seriously, of course. I started by buying every single Intro to Judaism book out there and used snippets in here and there the first number of years and called from here and there and showed videos. And a lot of the books just weren't speaking to my particular students. Obviously, every community is different. At my Jesuit Catholic school, we have 11,000 students, about 8,000 undergrads, and 5% of our students are Jewish. Our courses in the humanities cap at 40 students. So at best, you know, 5% of 40 students, so you're talking one or two students. Usually, so it would be one and a half students. So usually, I have about five or six students out of 40 who out themselves, so to speak, as Jews at some point in the class. So from the get-go, my pedagogical, my educational sensibilities were how do I teach this stuff to non-Jews? I certainly knew that before I took the job, but it's another thing when you step inside the classroom. And Jews in Northern California are also a very unique bunch when it comes to Jewish identity. We know this historically, we know this statistically, um, arguably, at least other than the most recent study done. Some people cite the study that 70% of Jews in Northern California marry non-Jews, and so they have unique family dynamics in terms of interfaith or multi-faith or what have you. I grew up in Philadelphia, um, attending 13 years of Jewish day school. My mom converted to Judaism, and I would guess that I was the only kid in the entire Jewish day school that had that background. My Grammy and Grampy, my mom's parents, were not Jewish, right? It makes sense if she converted from something else. So for me, I grew up knowing, if you will, non-Jews. There was nothing weird to me about non-Jews, but I knew in, in my Jewish day school community that we were taught, most of our teachers were Jewish, we were taught from a relatively narrow perspective insofar as you know, I didn't, I didn't come out after 13 years of Jewish day school knowing that Jews made up 0.2% of the population. If I had to guess, I would have been like, I don't know, 20%, right? I mean, that's kind of the education I got. So when I had to piece this all together, I didn't have a, one book that worked for my students and call it audacious, call it redundant, call it whatever you want. I gave it a shot. All right, I'm going to try to write my own. And really approach identity from a notion of social identities. And I'll get into that in a moment. So I'm a teacher. So I have two goals. And the first, these are my two goals anytime I'm teaching these days. I'm not here to essentialize what it means to be a Jew. And I'm not here to simplify one's understanding. If anything, I'm here to complicate it. uh, And leave you with more questions than answers. Uh, I think a good teacher, that's just how I was Schooled, that's what a good teacher leaves the students to come up with their own answers. There's two parts to this talk. First, I'm going to lay out some basic characteristics about Jews and Jewish communities that aren't commonly mentioned when speaking about dominant Jewish narratives, dominant Jewish stories. Second, I'm going to discuss three major trends in today's Jewish landscape, how certain elements of these trends are emphasized over others, and what this might implicate in terms of charting Jewish futures. And if you didn't, if that's way too many words, don't worry. It'll become clear as we go on. All right, so another way to look at the two parts. The first is Jewish identities. My take is it's really a prism. You know, in the same way if you take one of those little prism guys and hold it up to light, and it refracts the light into all different colors, to me that's You want to essentialize Jews, it means there is no, the the definition of a Jew is there is no definition, meaning you can't essentialize Jews because you're talking about a community that dates itself back 3,000 years and literally has lived all over the planet Earth and is as diverse as any other group of 15 million people on the planet. In that sense, Jew is also a social identity, and I'll unpack that in a little bit part 2 is this notion of inattentional blindness and when we when Jews talk about the Jewish story who's what pers- what part of the Jewish people are they actually reflecting meaning is it really are they telling the Ashkenazi Jewish story the Ashkenazi American Jewish story cuz in general my experiences uh, as a Jewish day school student as someone still wedded to Jewish education is that The Jewish way of doing anything is commonly essentialized to one group, one subgroup of Jews. So first off, as I already mentioned, I think it's imperative to keep in mind that we're talking about 0.2% of the planet. Now, even if there's 15 to 16 million Jews in the world, give or take a million, that's still a very, very small piece of the puzzle. And I think that's critical because I don't think it's possible to understand Jews except in relationship to the other 99.8% of the planet. Jews have always interacted with the dominant group, which other than until the state of Israel and when Jews are the dominant group, for almost all of history, Jews have always been a minority. There's always this interface and interplay with non-Jews. So, so we'll do Q&A at the end. Um, I don't have a I have a pen in my bag if you need one okay so I'll, I'll talk for a bit and then we'll do a Q&A all right so this notion of Jews as a social identity what do I mean I mean that we're walking around all of us with multiple identities each of us identifies in terms of race age citizenship culture ethnicity gender nationality physical ability physical appearance profession religion, sex, sexual orientation, etc., etc., etc. We're walking around with countless social identities and a lot of times we don't even necessarily have one of these. Now, you know, it's not uncommon for someone to have more than one nationality and it's imperative to understand the notion of being a Jew as a social identity from a sociological or even anthropological point of view. Are we perform our identities, and I don't mean in a theatrical sense, I mean by the way we dress, by the way we talk, by our mannerisms, everything we do, all of our behavior is performed. It, it's, we were taught to do it, sometimes we, we, it's somewhere innate, whatever, whether it's nature, nurture, all of those things, but we perform our identities, and being a Jew is no different than, being, than any, of the other, any of these other identities in terms of it being a social identity. Now the most common way to understand the signifier, the name Jew, is as a religion. And I would say that historically the reason for that from a 21st century perspective is that Jews for the last two, three, four hundred years, primarily in North America and Europe, have been understood in terms of what they are not. Jews are not the majority, the majority being Christian, ergo Jews, Judaism is a religion because Christianity is a religion. Now certainly we could talk about how Christianity is a culture as much as a religion, especially in the Christian dominant country and what have you, um, but that's the common way that the notion of being a Jew is talked about and understood, whether within the Jewish community or not. But really in terms of how Jews identify, it's much more common to see a number of different entry points into the conversation. A lot of Jews, it's their culture, ethnicity, it's their nation, it's their nationality. For sure, it's religion, race, and it can be one or more of the same. Um, Starting in studies that have been done in 2001 and then again in 2013, 25% of American Jews in particular have said that it's their culture. And I've actually said they have no religion. The so-called nuns, N-O-N-E, nuns. That, yeah, I don't have a religion. Oh, well, do you identify as Jewish? Yes. What is it? My culture. And if you take Jews under the age of 40, that goes from 25% up to about 33, 38% of Jews say they have absolutely, uh, Jewish Americans say they don't even have a religion. It's only their culture or ethnicity or heritage. So we even have facts on the ground. It's not just some random professor saying, yeah, it's not entirely a religion, it's also how Jews themselves identify. If we take the entry point of Jews being a culture, all right, and in terms of still part one, how Jews are incredibly diverse, the question, well, one of many questions is, so what links these different people with this quote-unquote same culture together? Really, is there a common denominator between Albert Einstein and Gene Simmons. For those of you youth out there, kiss. Sarah Silverman, Sammy Davis Jr. I would submit, even though two of these people are no longer with us, that these four people, if we were able to sit them down in a room, they would have very different discussions. Their entry point into what it means to be a Jew would be four completely different things. And that's just four. Remember, there's about 15, 16 million of these people. I'm I'm one of them these Jews, Jewish people. So more to the point, is there really a common bond between all Jews? For instance, between Brazilian Amazonian Jews, Uzbekistani Jews, are the languages, rituals, and worldview the same for Alaskan Ashkenazi Jews, Ugandan Abaydaya Jews, Syrian Aleppo-identified Jews, Peruvian Incan Jews, and none of these are made up. And we could spend the next block of time for me saying, well, what about this? What about um, Chilean Jews of Syrian descent, right? We could just keep going on and on and on. And I'm not sure what the common cultural or ethnic bond is between these different groups. At a minimum, I think it's an important question to ask. So if our entry point is ethnicity, and again, part of this is to show how diverse this group is, you know, when I was growing up, and I don't think it's that different at the day schools I grew up at today, I didn't know you that there were such thing as Chinese Jews, right? This is a picture of uh, Jin Guangzong and his family in Kaifeng, China from just a few years ago, 2012. But the community in Kaifeng goes back probably about 1,000 years. And here's a photo from about 100 years ago. And I don't know if these people look anything right in your head they might look Chinese or whatever the heck that means but doesn't matter they look Jewish why because they are Jewish so they have to look Jewish all right if you enter a conversation of oh well are there other groups of Chinese Jews absolutely what about Indian Jews any single one of these groups that I started doing research on I couldn't believe the heterogeneity the the distinct the diversity within that subgroup so here's a group of Bene Menashe Indian Jews that had just immigrated to the state of Israel. Here's a Bene Israel pre-wedding henna ceremony in Taneh, India. Right? Not, not standard to a, a say if a wedding was performed here at Temple Solel. Um, Bene Israel, Indian Jews making matzah in Indi, India just a few years back. Uh, here's two Jewish men in Mosul, Iraq, from about a hundred years ago. You know, if I was, showed this, if I was shown this f- image, say, 10, 15, 20 years ago, I would have said, oh, they look Arab, right? But only once I started reading these books and studying, was like, oh, just like you can be an Arab Christian or an Arab Muslim, you can be an Arab Jew. It's only really the second half of the 20th century, where literally in the state of Israel, you couldn't legally on, the, on your ID cards be Arab and Jewish. You actually had to have make a choice. Um, that's when this notion of being an Arab Jew started to fray. But for most of Jewish history, Arab Jew, that was normal in the Middle East. There's another family of Iraqi Jews, uh, chief rabbi and his family, uh, Uzbekistani. Jew, a teacher with his students, Yemenite Jews outside a synagogue in the capital, Sana'a, a a little over 100 years ago, a different group of Yemenis all together, Habani Yemenites in Tel Aviv, pre-state of Israel, 1946. It's a Yemenite bride in the state of Israel. And like I said, if you take one subgroup, so if someone told you they are a Moroccan Jew, that might mean something to you in your head, just like if they told you they were an Iraqi Jew. But the diversity within the Moroccan community is as diverse just as, say, the Algerian or Spanish or Portuguese Jewish communities, such that when I spent um, the summer of 1999, I was able to spend three months in Morocco studying Arabic. And the first time I went to a synagogue in Marrakesh, everyone in that synagogue, not everyone, a handful of people in the synagogue looked like everyone else on the street, right? Morocco being a Muslim-majority country, Muslim-Arab majority, um, to the extent that at the end of services, one of the members of the congregation, I don't know how about they pay dues and all of that, like we do in America, but one of the clear congregants was asking me if I was going to come back for the afternoon service, so in my Ashkenazi American, I was assuming he would say mincha or something like that if he wanted. But he kept going, miha, miha, miha. And literally I had no idea what he was saying. I was in, Arab, I was in Morocco to study Arabic. And I, the, his chet, to use an Ashkenazi pronunciation, was, was a strong, it was very guttural and very strong Um, And it took me literally about five minutes to understand and put the pieces together. Now, that could speak to my, my brain not working. But it was also just one simple word, mincha. He wanted to know if I was coming back for the afternoon prayer. So that got me into studying a lot about Moroccan Jews. Moroccan Jews, you have all different subsets. The group in Morocco that claims to have been there first is the so-called indigenous group of Moroccan Jews, Berber Berber Jews. So the Berbers are one of the dominant ethnic groups in Morocco um, and commonly live up in the mountains, but not nearly entirely. Berber Jews trace themselves back either to the Babylonian exile, 6th century before the Common Era, or trace themselves back to the 1st century, the exile around the destruction of the Second Temple, Then you have Moroccan Jews that identify as Arab, that more or less came with the, when the Muslim Arabs were spreading from what we now call Saudi Arabia or the Arabian Peninsula due west and came with the Muslim Arabs and as Islam, as the Muslims conquered northern Africa. So Muslim Jews, I'm sorry, Arab Jews in Morocco often trace themselves back to the 8th or ninth century. Now, we know about the Inquisitions, right, in Spain and Portugal, but what I was taught growing up was that the, the main dates to keep in my head were 1492, Spanish Inquisition, 1495, Portuguese Inquisition. But then when I became older and started reading books, there were actually Inquisitions that took place over the course of three, 400 years. Depends how you define an Inquisition. If you say to a given group of Jews, you either convert to Christianity, largely Catholicism, but not always in this period, or we kill you, or you flee for your lives. Well, that's an inquisition as far as I'm concerned. And over the course of hundreds of years, you had some Jews from the Iberian Peninsula, what we call Spain, Portugal now, coming to Morocco, and they had different... Rituals, whether they were coming in the 1100s or 1200s or 1400s, and because there a fourth group of Jews living in Spain and Portugal was created, those Jews that pretended that converted publicly and pretended to be Catholic, but in private kept on with their Jewish rituals, so-called Moranos, now more popularly called Conversos. So, if a Converso came to Morocco, a Converso family came to Morocco in the 1400s. That's a radically different family than even maybe literally the same family lineage that came in the 1300s, all right? So you're already seeing the, la- the layers. You also have some of the Russian Jews fleeing pogroms in the 1800s ended up here. So you even have Moroccan Jews who identify as of Russian descent. Then you have Moroccan Jews that came when the French colonized this part of Africa, and even, aside from all of those different, that's like six, seven, eight, nine, ten different types of Moroccan Jews, you also have these two cities on the northernmost coast in Morocco, up here, that are technically Spain, meaning you need a passport to get into them. It's kind of like, for my mind, it's kind of like if you went to an embassy or a consulate where you... In theory, you're on the soil of that sovereign country, even if, as the crow flies, you're still in the United States of America or wherever. So Sueta and Melia are both Spanish, and an article from just a few years ago um, that I uncovered of uh, Melia, you had 12 different synagogues, and that's just Melia. Forget Sueta, forget the rest. So if someone tells you they're a Moroccan Jew, well, it tells you something. But I'm not entirely sure what is my point because there's such diversity, and not just in the Moroccan community, but in the Algerian, Libyan, Yemenite, Indian, Ethiopian, Chinese, etc., each and every one of these communities is incredibly diverse. All right, and this is really just one piece of the mosaic. And once you start getting into the 21st century, in the United States, You have so-called multi-ethnic Jews, African-American Jews, Asian Jews, Puerto Rican Jews, Latino Jews, is not uncommon. 20% of Jews in the United States of America do not identify as Ashkenazi, but identify as Sephardi, or Mizrahi, or Arab, or black, or Asian, or what have you. One out of every five. And we'll get to this a little bit later, but the notion of females, female rabbis, um, females wearing tefillin, Talis. despite the fact that many of these things are historical, they've become mainstream. And that's new. Here's a, an Arab boy, an Arab Jewish boy in Tunisia on the island of Jerba. Here's an Ethiopian Jewish woman. And not unlike these other groups, just like you had Converso Jews in Spain, Portugal, that publicly pretended to be Christian or Catholic but privately kept up with their Jewish traditions, you have Faris Mura Jews who did the same to the extent that in Ethiopia they tattooed crosses on their faces in terms of trying to assimilate and pretend that they were part of the dominant Christian voice. And in 21st century, we also have notion of diversity in general. I'm only talking about ethnic and uh, racial diversity. But if we get into gender diversity, so here this photo alone has incredible number of layers to it. This is a rabbi, Tzipi Gabay, um, to historical record, the first female Moroccan rabbi in history that we know of, About in her family lineage, about the 20th rabbi, generations of rabbi, but a woman. This is Tom Sosnick, and this is a ritual ceremony that Zippie Gabay created. It's a gender transition ceremony. And Tom Sosnick, at a Jewish day school, perhaps unsurprisingly, unsurprisingly to me, in the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area, Tom had a gender transition ceremony in front of his entire community. Again, we haven't even started getting into other forms of diversity within the Jewish community. This is also multi-layered because both of Tom's family, both of his parents rather, were born in Israel, and are Israeli Americans. So, part two. So we know that historically, despite what is being taught commonly, Jews are an incredibly diverse bunch, and there's multiple entry points into the conversation. But part of the the main thrust of tonight is when Jews are talking about Jewish stories or Jewish rituals or the Jewish story, which pieces of the Jewish stories are being left out? When communicating about a community, speaking, teaching, writing a book, we must ask who's part of the conversation and who isn't? Whose stories, what stories and whose stories are being left out? There's a short 58 second experiment here that I'll spoil. It's called the, well, I won't tell you what it's called, but it's an experiment, social psychology experiment, that probably at least a quarter of you are already familiar with, where you're asked to, there's six people, three wearing a dark shirt, three wearing a white shirt, and you're asked to count how many times they pass the basketball. And what happens is in the middle of this experiment, and I'm sorry for spoiling it without doing it, but a gorilla, a a person dressed up in a gorilla outfit, walks into the middle of it, hits its chest, and walks her out. And they've done this study all over the world, and regardless of age, nationality, race, ethnicity, gender, language, culture, et cetera, et cetera. Roughly 50% of the people who see it see the gorilla and roughly 50% of the people don't see it. And I've also done it not as many times as they've done it but I've certainly done it and my stats are similar. Usually about 40% of people don't see it but I also think that not everyone wants to admit it. They call this phenomenon inattentional blindness. How is it that you can have a gorilla walk into the middle of a circle and people are watching and people don't have problems with their eyesight and they don't see the gorilla. And they have countless examples. I mean, they have a book called The Invisible Gorilla. They have all sorts of examples of of amazing social psychology experiments like this. They call it inattentional blindness, right? And they also speak about how eyewitness testimony, specifically in American Court of law is among the least reliable sources of evidence in, in the world. But I would say inattentional blindness is a nice way of calling it. We could also call it bias or discrimination, depending on what we're talking about. Obviously, if you don't see the gorilla, you're not anti gorilla right? You don't have prejudice against gorillas. I don't think that's what they're getting at. But by definition, we discriminate. We doesn't necessarily mean to be a, a bad thing, but we discriminate by seeing some things and not seeing others. That's just how our brains as humans work. We, we, I might go over there, and one of those paintings catches my eye, and maybe there's someone standing there that I don't even see. Right? There's a famous Yehuda Amichai, an Israeli poet, um, a famous poem that he writes about, that the Messiah is only going to come when people go to Jerusalem and instead of seeing the arch and studying the arch in, in the old city of Jerusalem and looking at its contours and everything, that people actually see the, the person underneath the arch who's selling bread or what have you. right? We, we, by definition, see certain things and don't see other things. All right, so now in terms of what we see and what we don't see, one way we can enter that conversation is by looking at three massive changes to the Jewish community over the last century seismic changes so one of these is that Jews 80 percent of all Jews live in two countries now you know once that's pointed out many of you would be like oh yeah of course right state of Israel and the United States of America 40 percent of all Jews worldwide live in Israel 40 percent live in the United States then you have about um, 10 percent in Europe and 10 percent all over the place every other country but that's completely anomalous if we have this history we have this timeline of Jewish history and say before the common era is down there say this entire line here of the of and we're in 2018 here so this notion of all Jews or 80% of Jews living in two countries is this piece of the puzzle that's completely ahistorical in terms of Jewish history now obviously in the United States that really starts to take shape between 1880 and 1910 influx of about a million Jews of Ashkenazi descent coming in from Russia and Europe and the state of Israel obviously wasn't created established as such until 1948 so these are very new despite the fact that these things might have happened before i i was born and many of you were born it's kind of doesn't matter in the sense of the relevancy of when we're looking at Jewish history writ large. 80% living in two places is strange. The other 10%, by the way, that lives all over the place, if there's roughly 200 countries on the planet, right? Depends on how we define a country and are we gonna say they're sovereign or... There's about 200 countries. And Jews, that 10%, so 40% live in Israel, 40% live in United States, 10% live in Europe, 10% all over the place. That other 10%, 1.5 million roughly, they are located on about 140 of the 200 countries. That is the norm of Jewish history, of the dispersion of Jews. They're the norm. Historically, they're the outlier today. They're the oddballs today. But that's actually much, much more true to history. Seismic change number two is women in roles of authority as never seen before. You only had the first known female ordained rabbi in 1935. She perished in the, in the Shoah in the Holocaust, and the reform movement wasn't, didn't ordain another woman until 1972. Sally Persan, who, who lives in North Jersey in Deal, Sandy Eisenberg Sasso in 74, Ordained by the reform uh, by the Reconstructionist movement, Amy Eilberg in '84, conservative movement, and then in the Orthodox movement, you start seeing echoes of this phenomenon in terms of Sarah Hurwitz in 2009. Those four women are right there: Sally, Sandy, Amy, and Sarah, Lila, and and in unfortunately in a. A very small minority of the Orthodox community has now started ordaining women. I say unfortunately because it hasn't been larger in the Orthodox community. Um, but that's incredibly new as well. Now this is normal to most Jews today. Even if you're 80, 90, 100 years old, it might not be normal in your memory. But if you've been going to synagogue regularly or participating in Jewish events, it wouldn't be strange to encounter a female rabbi. To the extent that I've heard this story from two different rabbis, from two different synagogues, but both of them uh, at Bay Area synagogues. I had a, a woman, uh, Chai Levy, a rabbi in the Bay Area who came to my class at USF a few years ago, and she told the story of how there was a boy in her congregation who went back east to Boston to go to a bar bat mitzvah of a cousin, and he saw up on the Bima in in the suburb of Boston, I think in Newton, he saw two or three male rabbis, and this boy literally turned to his mom and said, I didn't know men could be rabbis, <laughs> right? And I had a different rabbi tell me it's the same story that she recently experienced. But obviously that would never have happened in Jewish history until now. My, I grew up in Philadelphia, suburb of Philly, and my oldest sister, she had her bat mitzvah uh, in 1980. Now having a bat mitzvah wasn't unique. But she, it was the first time at my conservative affiliated synagogue in the suburb of Philadelphia that it was the first time you had a woman read from the Torah. It happened not to be my stepsister because the rabbi only told my sister two weeks before her bat mitzvah, I've decided you can read from the Torah. She's 12 years old, two weeks in advance, she decided to pass. But... My stepmom decided to do it because she realized, uh, wow, look, look at how things are changing. And she memorized the trope and she, she was the first woman who, first female, who read Torah. And that's in my lifetime. But that's normal now. But again, we need to see if we pan back in terms of that's ahistorical. The third ahistorical piece that I'm touching on a little bit is... Jews with non-dominant identities in terms of gender, sex, and sexual orientation have started to become more accepted in the Jewish community. And this is even more recent, because you really only start to see books, whether they're first-person autobiographical narratives or academic books, in the Jewish community on issues related to queer Jews in 2000. 2001, 1999, that's when you start to see even nonprofits in the Jewish community and, and attention in a formal way being paid to those Jews who do not identify as heterosexual or cisgender, non, non-transgender, etc. But all of this is to say that whether we take into account these three changes or not, but we are going to take into the, in, them into account, some identities within the Jewish collective are dominant and
0: some are marginalized or subordinated. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybetemidraj.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. And the dominant Jewish
1: narratives still being taught in Jewish educational settings, in Jewish day schools, afternoon schools, are by and large American-centric and Israel-centric. Okay, we understand why, right? 80% of all Jews live in those two places. Nonetheless, that's not reflective of most of Jewish history. So we have these two things bumping up against each other. The reality that, yes, 80% live in those two countries, so maybe there should be an American-centric or an Israel-centric focus in terms of education, but maybe not If most of Jewish history, Jews haven't lived in those two places. Most are male-centric, right? Most Jewish history is still male-centric despite the fact that we know about this seismic change of women in positions of authority as never seen before. Now, there's certainly not equity in terms of female rabbis in positions of power, at whether small synagogues or big synagogues or Jewish community centers or federations, many studies have been done on this, and you can find over the last decade you can find a handful of Jewish women who are the executive directors, uh, CEOs of federations. But out of hundreds, you can find two or three. Right? There's not even close to equity, but there is a shift that has taken place. So there it. Things are still male-centric even with facts to the contrary in terms of women in positions of authority as never seen before. Things are still taught heteronormative, meaning where hetero, heterosexuality is the norm. That if, if two people, you know, where I, my neck of the woods these days in, in the Bay Area where I've been for over a decade, we say partner instead of, uh, or spouse, instead of wife or husband because it's not uncommon for someone to be in a same-sex marriage. And that's one way that some people have tried to kind of level the playing field. Cisgender-centric, meaning where most people are cisgender, meaning you're not transgender, meaning you identify with the dominant forms of gender expression. You identify as male or female, even though you're starting to see some people who don't identify with a gender. Not that this isn't a phenomenon that's existed for thousands of years, but it's becoming part of mainstream discourse. It's something we, America, finally have a word, transgender, which is in dictionaries. Um, But we're still seeing the dominant Jewish narratives, despite evidence to the contrary of the variety of ways that Jews identify in terms of geography or gender or uh, sexual sexual orientation, or it's still limited, all right? And most Jewish settings are still teaching things that are Ashkenazi-centric, teaching this is the way to do something is actually maybe an American or Israel-centric, male-centric, heteronormative, cisgender-centric, Ashkenazi-centric way to do something. And even then, maybe not. Maybe it's actually just one of many. Now, we can explore, and I will briefly, of why these narratives are, for instance, Ashkenazi-centric. There's some very tangible reasons, just in the same way why are histories commonly American-centric and Israel-centric. Well, we can understand if 80% of all Jews live in those two places. One is that most Jews today are Ashkenazi, a little over 60%, 62% of Jews worldwide identify as Ashkenazi, and 38% identify as African-American, Chinese, Ethiopian, Indian, Mizrahi, Sephardi, Puerto Rican, and on and on and on and on. So, okay, so one could say, well, things are Ashkenazi-centric because most Jews are Ashkenazi. But this also is anomalous. This is not the norm. If you go back to 1800, this number drops to about 40% of the world's Jews are Ashkenazi. If you go down to 1,500, roughly one out of every three Jews in the world is Ashkenazi. And by some scholars' counts, if you go down to about 1,000 CE, about 7, 8% of all Jews worldwide are Ashkenazi. So again, we're living in an anomalous time in terms of Ashkenaziness. Now is not the norm in terms of Jewish history, but we're still teaching things as if Ashkenazi is the be-all and end-all. And I say this as an Ashkenazi Jew. Another reason for Ashkenazi dominance is that in, United, in America, is in the United States, Ashkenazi distinctions have become relatively meaningless. So one example, in 1851, you, have two group, you had one group of Jews that wanted to start their own synagogue in San Francisco. By 1852, you had two groups of Jews that wanted to start their own synagogue in San Francisco. Retroactively, we would call one German and one Polish. The German Jews founded this synagogue. The Polish Jews founded this one. But those types of distinctions were critical in the 1800s and even for most of the 1900s, whereby today I would submit that if you took a poll of, say, a 1,000 Jews under the age of 40 between these two synagogues, if they even knew to identify as Ashkenazi, they certainly wouldn't have, even if they knew to say, yeah, my, my ancestors that came to the United States were German Jews, or my ancestors were Russian Jews, or they, chances are, and I would definitely put money on this one, wouldn't be able to say, okay, so you identify as German Jew, you identify as a Russian Jew that's been in America for four generations. Do you care that you're sitting next to a German, a Jew of German descent? Meaning that these distinctions of being German-Jewish-American or Russian-Jewish-American or Polish-Jewish-American have come to a place where they're not, they don't divide Jews anymore. And for most of American history, they did divide Jews. Because if you, like my father-in-law, he grew up, um, with German Jewish parents that spoke German, and he and I joke because his parents look down on those Jews that spoke Yiddish, like my people, right so that the marriage of me to my partner probably would never have happened a hundred years ago because i 'm of Russian lineage and he 's of good German stock or she is, my, my partner is of German stock of the elites, but again that, those Today, that's roughly, it's insignificant. But that's another reason that Ashkenazi dominance has happened in the United States, because Ashkenazi Jews have become more homogenized. Another reason, arguably, for Ashkenazi dominance in the United States is that, arguably, the Shoah, the Jewish genocide of World War II, and the foundation of the state of Israel, the establishment of Israel in '48 are two of, if not the two most monumental episodes in Jewish history of the 20th century. Now the Shoah affected roughly 99.9% of the Jews that were decimated were Ashkenazi Jews. We know that there were some non Ashkenazi Jews, Fardi and what have you in Greece and Italy and some other enclaves and now research in the last decade or so has started to uncover Non-Ashkenazi Jews in in camps in northern Africa, German-run camps. But by and large, it was Ashkenazi. It was an Ashkenazi experience that has become a Jewish experience. State of Israel was by and large founded by Ashkenazi Jews. Most of the Jews that were immigrating there in the 1900s. You had pockets of Yemenite Jews and some other groups, but it's it's apples and oranges when you see the percentages of Ashkenazi Jews to non-Ashkenazi Jews immigrating and then really founding the state of Israel. You only really start to see an influx of non-Ashkenazi Jews to Israel in the 1950s, well after the state was founded, meaning founded isn't just 48, but founding is creating the foundation for the country. You have about 800,000 Jews from the Middle East and North Africa who immigrated to the state of Israel in the 50s. But you can look at the infrastructural dominance of Ashkenazi Jews in Israel still to this day in terms of representation in the Knesset, in the parliament, in terms of um, prime ministers, presidents, and what have you. And the last one is a little bit more contentious over the last two years, but was certainly less contentious prior to that, is <coughs> Ashkenazi Jews in America have become white, meaning that whiteness is an idea, So my dad, who happened to be visiting this weekend, was reading a a book talking about Italians in 1927 in the East Coast and how they were run out of town and they they weren't allowed to go to schools with the quote-unquote normal whites. These are Italian non-Jews. And that was the norm, that the Italians were the downtrodden and the Poles were the downtrodden and the Irish were the downtrodden and the Jews longer than any of the others, but really post-World War II, we start to see Jews being accepted more into the United States of America, the fabric and the milieu of America, to the point that now in the 21st century, for sure, if Jews make up 2% of the American population, Jews are disproportionately represented in positions of power in government, in media, in uh, the arts, uh, on and on and on. Because, One of the reasons is because Ashkenazi Jews, by and large, have become white. Now, certainly since the new President of the United States was elected, you have seen spikes, according to the ADL, among other sources, in acts of anti-Jewish, anti-Semitism. And by and large, that's because white supremacist groups have, quote unquote, reminded people the Jews aren't really white. They're pretending to be white, right? So some of these anti-Semitic tropes that have been in America for most of American history have reemerged. But prior to that, this wouldn't have been a controversial statement to say Ashkenazi Jews are white. Now there's other pieces that I'm gonna go through very quickly of um, Ashkenazi centrism, one of them being this issue of dichotomization, which I'll explain. I was brought up after 13 years of day school, if you asked me as an 18 year old, So how do you divide the Jews up? Not in terms of denominations. I would have said, you're Ashkenazi, you're Sephardi. I thought anyone who wasn't Ashkenazi was Sephardi. And that's still being taught in Jewish day schools to this day. Not all of them, of course. But Sephardi Jews are simply those Jews who trace themselves back to Sfarad, the Iberian Peninsula. What we now call Spain and, and Portugal. But what about... First off, the term Sfardi didn't emerge until the 1500s. So those Jews who were the first generation of Sfardi Jews didn't call themselves Sfardi Jews. So it's a term that we've used in retrospect. Second, Sfardi Jews that fled Spain, Portugal ended up all over the place. The earliest American Jews were all Sfardi. Earliest Jews in the Caribbean were Sfardi, earliest Jews in South America were Sfardi. But then if you look at a map, Sfardi Jews ended up in Morocco and Algeria and Tunisia and Libya and Lebanon and Egypt and Italy and Turkey, etc., etc. They ended up all over the place, such that the diversity within the Sfardi community is arguably much more diverse than the Ashkenazi community. And yet, historically, Sfardi Jews have become talked about as if they're kind of all one group. Then you also have a term called Mizrahi Jews, which is really a term that emerged in the state of Israel in the 50s. And it's a term that emerged from the Ashkenazi community to talk about those Jews who were coming from the Middle East, the so-called East. But this notion of dichotomization, a binary, turning things into either this or that, you're white or you're a person of color, you're Ashkenazi or you're a Jew of color, Right, those are pretty simplistic ways of seeing things. Even though they're still dominant tropes. And then there's, I'm not going to go into it, but there's all sorts of rituals in pop culture and what have you that are Jewish that are really Ashkenazi. Whether we're talking about Yiddish words that have literally made their way into the English dictionary or um, Ashkenazi foods that have become reflective of the Jewish type of food. You know, a Seder plate that looks like this is not the norm, right? This isn't even getting into ethnicity. But here's a Seder plate for vegans, right? There's no shank bone. There's a beet, right, for, the, for blood. Um, there's not a real egg. There's a ceramic egg. Um, you have olives for peace in, in the Middle East. This orange and a Seder plate, which is a whole different piece of the puzzle. But this Seder plate is not the norm. So when it comes down to it, I would say that there's two pieces that really get inside of the heterogeneity of the Jewish people. One is embodied in the old chestnut about a Jew, was on a island, in is a de- deserted island, and is saved by someone coming along in the ship. And this is even, this is better, so, the person who saves the Jew says, Why'd you build two huts? He says, Those are the two synagogues. And, and the person who saved him, Why'd you build two synagogues? Everyone knows one to belong to, and a second I would never set foot in. Right? Which, you know, you don't have to go further than the Temple of Emmanuel and Sheriff Israel in, in San Francisco to know isn't actually a joke not rooted in reality, right? That joke, I think, among other things, doesn't really point to the cantankerous nature of Jews. I think it points to just the distinctions within the Jewish people that have always been there. If you go back to, if you approach the five books of Moses, the Torah, as a historical document, the narrative teaches that the group that came out from Israel, uh, from Egypt, rather, going towards the Promised Land were the so called mixed multitude. From the beginning, this group was heterogeneous you have various figures. Again, if you approach the Torah as a historical document, you have various famous biblical figures marrying out. Uh, kings, but also Joseph, Moses. The other piece speaks to something else. So as the renowned 20th century Yiddish writer and Nobel laureate Isaac Bashevis Singer once explained, um, and I'll, I'll go with the... Uh, horrific, thick Russian accent, I'll try it. A man returned from Warsaw and told his friend, I saw a Jew who was poring over the Talmud day and night. I saw a Jew who was waving the red flag of communism. I saw a Jew who was passing out leaflets to come see his new play on Spinoza. His friend says, so, no, that's unusual about that. There are a lot of Jews in Warsaw. And the first Jew says... But don't you understand, my friend? It was all the same Jew. The notion of heterogeneity within each Jew is another piece of this puzzle in terms of gender, in terms of race, in terms of ethnicity, in terms of every social identity under the sun, that you're not just talking about heterogeneity across the Jewish peoples, but also within each person. How many of us have gone through different theological loops over the course of our lives. And maybe some of us affiliated with this synagogue or then that synagogue, or statistically, most Jews under the age of 40 don't affiliate with any synagogue, right? These changes within each one of us in terms of a Jewish identity, that's reflective of, of the larger patterns. So in conclusion, when speaking about what the future holds for a single Jew or all Jews, I'd say only one thing is certain, There are always going to be multiple understandings of Jews, Judaisms, and Jewish identities. This has always been and always will be. Perhaps once this fact is incorporated into the community's dominant narratives, there our futures will begin to arrive. Thank you.
2: Do you know if an extensive undertaking uh, has been planned? do some DNA testing of Jews
0: around the world and some big, broad analysis of that uh, to be done.
1: Sure. So the question has to do with DNA testing. So I'd say that's actually the most common question on people's minds after a talk like this. Um, And... My one disclaimer to begin is I'm no geneticist or scientist by any stretch, but I can tell you, having been to multiple conferences on Jewish identities, where we have sociological perspectives like my own, and genetic people who are, are, are expertise in that such, I'd say that my limited understanding is that we, so if you do a DNA swab, and it depends on which Group, you do it through the National Geographic or what have you. So my mom did it through National Geographic. And it had a map of the two-dimensional map of the planet Earth and had little dots for those places that she was connected back to, right? So the most common way that these tests work traces you back to a geographical area. But that doesn't mean necessarily that it traces you back to a particular group within that area. In fact, very few do. The ones that do, it depends on how many other people have done the test. So the most well-known one out in the Bay Area is called 23andMe. And 23andMe, your printout will say Jew on it or Ashkenazi Jew, but they don't have anything for Sephardi Jew or Mizrahi Jew or Ethiopian Jew or Chinese Jew or et cetera. So, My understanding from 23andMe, and I've only been able to glean this from people I've spoken to anecdotally because they've never gotten back to me when I've contacted them to write something on this, is that it's because of the other sample sizes with people. Because part of it has to do with some of what you fill out is how you self-identify. So some of the data, I would say, in some sense, is corrupted or, or led in a particular direction. But more to the point... The Jewish community is one that one can become part of. Such that you don't have to be born in it, and you can step into it, right? My mom stepped into it. She performed a certain ritual. She took classes. And so because there's already that entry point where you don't have to be, even if you could be biologically Jewish, you don't have to be to become Jewish. I'd say that to some degree that already moves the the question, to the margins, for me. Um, I'd say also, well, we know that there's Chinese Jews and Ethiopian Jews. Jews come in every single flavor, color, size. So it'd be neat and tidy if we could count and connect all those 15 million people who identify as Jews back to a common source. But as of this point in history, we can't. But I, I was telling the rabbi this, so there's a, recently there was a a conference, and maybe this week, with some ultra orthodox Jews and some Pashtun Jews from Afghanistan, who claim to be part one of the lost tribes of Israel. And our local Jewish newspaper. I'm not an expert on Afghani Jews by any stretch, but uh, you know she didn't really have too many people to call. So she called me, and I said, listen, I don't know how far you can trace yourself back, but on my dad's side, on my Russian-Jewish side, we can only trace ourselves back about 250 years. And my mom's non-Jewish side, we can trace ourselves back about 300 years. But I can't trace myself back any further, and I, I doubt you can. And yeah, there are some people here and there who allege that they can trace themselves back, say, 1,000 years. I have never met anyone who can trace themselves back two or 3,000 years. And I would be suspect if someone said that. So at a certain point in time, I don't even think historically we can trace ourselves back to X, Y, and Z. And maybe, yes, maybe genetics is the, is the way to find that. But ultimately, what happens if we found out that there was some, some allele or whatever the heck, right? So what would that show? I don't know. Maybe that shows that you're from a common ancestor and maybe I'm from the same common ancestor. And then what? Right, so that I think is the more important question. So even if, let's suppose that we can do that and suppose we have it honed down. So then, okay, is, is that going to affect my Jewish identity? Me personally, no. Some people, yeah, for sure. And I don't think there's anything wrong one way or the other. Um, but I'd say that identity these days is much more porous and, and um, translucent and can sh- change based on all sorts of things, much more than what you're biologically determined to be. Yeah?
0: Much of what <clears throat> you've articulated
2: is, is that post-World War II, we've been able to kind of choose our identity. Prior to World War II, how much of the world told you right. you were able to choose? Yeah. You're Jewish, can you speak to
1: that? Sure. So I think most minorities, certainly every minority community I've ever studied, which is a handful of them, um, their identity is imposed on them as much from the people outside their community, usually the majority, as anyone else, right? And I think that's pretty basic to history, right? We call it, in in academic jargon, we might say internalized oppression, is is if you're an oppressed group and you're told by the dominant group that you are sub-whatever, subhuman not smart not bright crafty mischievous whatever it is you might as part of that group that's been labeled as such internalize that and start thinking of yourself as such um i think jews i I think the 20th century is a remarkable century for jews but i think for most of history jews have not been able to identify as whatever they've wanted to um And I I think that's awful and what have you, but I also think that's how minority people are by and large treated by dominant groups. Um, And I think there's, you know, in one of the artists I I quote in the book is, he talks about Jewish identity as one, a portable identity, and two, he he talks about Jewish identity in terms of cross-fertilization. And I think that's a a great way of thinking of it in terms of cultural cross-fertilization that Jews have been shaped and shaped have been shaped by uh, by non-Jews and have shaped their own identities. It's it's a give and take. So if we look at the rise of women in in roles of authority in the Jewish community, well, it doesn't take a, a historian to say, oh, well, you had the rise of the feminist movement in America, right? You see the starting started the acceptance of Jews on the margins in terms of sexual orientation and gender and sex have started to be more accepted in the Jewish community. Well, that's part and parcel to the larger LGBTQ advents in the United States. I mean, you can see all sorts of pieces of Jewish identity that have been shaped over time that are happening part and parcel to non-Jewish, whether we're talking about the Haskalah and the Enlightenment and modernity or, or anything really. Um, And one of the reasons I'd say you can find so many different expressions of Judaism is that Jews, because of their portable identity, I'd, I'd say that there's something part of Jewish culture that has been forced or what have you to adapt. And I'd say that has, if we could isolate that, we would figure out like, ah, that's one of the things of reasons why Jews have survived is our adaptability. But for sure, part of that adaptability is adapting to how you're treated by another group as much as, well, because we have the freedom to act in the way that we want. I'd say that you can't separate them out.
2: Two things. Number one, it seems to me, and and I'd be interested in your perspective, that in terms of male-centricness and heterocentricness, Jews seem to be further ahead than other religions. And, and I'd be interested in your in your thoughts on that. Second, um, when you're teaching Judaism to non-Jews, since so much of Judaism here, and even throughout the world, is Ashkenazi and male-centric and so forth, I mean, you're talking to us about all, all, all the wide variety, but really when you're teaching Judaism to non-Jews, it seems to me you almost have to focus on what the majority is. And I, I wonder how, how you deal
1: with that. So the second one's really easy. There's this book I wrote called Judaism. <laughs> and it's as if I planted that question. Um, you know, I, I thought long and hard about that, and I had hundreds of students to, as my so-called guinea pigs, to work through. of How do you teach? You really have to teach the dominant narrative before you can deconstruct it. Right? How can you deconstruct something that you haven't even set up yet? So part of the way that I, I've tried to do it is start off by talking about dominant narratives writ large. So we start off with something as simple as a map, right? the so-called Mercator map, which is most of us, it's emblazoned into our minds. If we had to draw a picture, two-dimensional picture of the planet Earth, we would draw it based on this 1500 map from Gerardus Mercator from the 1500s. Right, The Gauls-Peter projection is the one that's long and what have you, I have it in the book, but it's much more, um, it, it's part and parcel linked to land mass, and Africa is gargantuan, and Europe is tiny, and it's much more reflective of reality. I talk about dominant narratives in America right? Um, we have notions in America. We know what is dominant ideas, and we know marginalized ideas, and we know how some of these ideas have started off completely marginalized, and some have made them their way into the mainstream. So I talk about, so the Ashkenazi narrative is dominant. Well, why is that? And I walk through, more or less, this is kind of the introduction in chapter one of the book. I kind of lay that out. All right, here's dominant narratives today, right now, and here's maybe how we got there, but this also isn't reflective of the incredible diversity of the Jewish people. Um, so it's, it's, it's hard to do. And I don't know if I succeed, but that's definitely the best, that's my best shot. First question again.
2: With the um, uh, male dominance and hetero Okay, yeah. Are, are Jews ahead of other
1: ethnicities? In- so, so in terms of Jewish Americans, on all issues, and this is just statistical data that's been supported by study after study after study, other than the state of Israel, which is a whole different, you know, elephant, on, on domestic issues, Jews are consistently, statistically, more progressive than other groups. Now, whether or not we say that, well, Jews are like that in terms of the religion of Judaism or the culture or the ethnicity, takes us back to square one, right? So we'd have to answer that question. Um, but that's just known in terms of voting, if we use voting as any indication of, of such things. It, there's been minor shifts in the last five years, but incredibly minor uh, in terms of Jews who, who are less progressive in their voting patterns. Um, I, I don't know if we're further along or not. Depends on how you define things, right? If one out of every three people on the planet Earth is Christian... Well, that's a lot of people. So we're talking about two to three billion people, right? Probably two and a half billion people. So, you know, there's lots of Catholics at my school who don't identify as Christian. Catholicism is different than Christianity, right? Okay. So I'm looking at it from like a simplistic historical lens. Well, don't you guys believe in Jesus? And, right? So I can, but if so, many Catholics don't identify as Christians as such. So then we would, all right, well, what about Episcopalians? Certainly in Catholicism, you don't have ordained women in positions of a power. Um, what about an Episcopalian uh, or other even, um, I would say, further left uh, Protestant groups? So it depends on how we're kind of slicing the pie. Um, yeah. Yeah. You had a photo collage of Sammy Davis
2: and Einstein, Jane Simmons, and Sarah Silverman. You suggested that their understanding of Judaism was probably very different from each other. But wouldn't you agree there's somewhat of a common narrative? That is, that uh, the people who left Egypt, uh, we were the people of the descendants of Abraham. The thought, that part of it, the, the, the basic story, is common pretty much to all Jews, whether they believe it or not.
1: So h- how I start the book in chapter 1 is I lay out working definitions for something I call truth and something I call fact. and and these are just working definitions that a teacher can use for 16 weeks, but for me, it helps me. I think truth is shaped, truth is a reflection of a dominant narrative. So I think the dominant narrative of something, for instance, President Obama, the dominant narrative is he was black or is black, right? African American, anyone following the campaign in 2008 followed that his mom was white, his dad was black, Right? and his dad wasn't African-American. He was Kenyan. All right, and Barack Obama in the 2010 census publicly checked off black African-American Negro. That, that was the, the choice of that particular box. So he identifies as black, but we know that one of his parents is white, so maybe he's actually the first biracial president. So in terms of a dominant narrative and subordinated narratives, the dominant narrative is usually... I'll give you another, I'll give you a different example. Uh, I mean, we could take Tiger Woods, but another example is Jackie Robinson. Dominant narrative is that he is the first African-American, first black baseball player to cross the line, so to speak, the racial barriers, right? Well, we actually, depends how you define Major League Baseball, and if you define Major League Baseball as professional baseball, we actually can go back to the 1890s, and there's two other guys. Betsy Ross. I'm from Philadelphia, and it's not uncommon for people still taught today that Betsy Ross designed and even needle and thread sewed the the first flag. There's absolutely no historical evidence to that, despite the fact that in Center City, Philadelphia, you can visit Betsy Ross's house in, in nice brick and everything with the plaque outside. There's no historian on the planet who has said Here's the historical evidence that points to that, right? So we have dominant narratives, and then we have facts. That, uh, one way one can orient to it. Um, so in terms of the Jews, I'd say that for most Jews, I'd say that the exodus from Egypt is true. It's the dominant narrative. I don't think you need to find whether or not they, most Jews believe it happened, I think is a different question. But I would argue that most Jews know that it happened. Meaning that it's part of their narrative. And it's part of their narrative that they trace themselves back to that group. Now, historically, that group, I think, or maybe the Hebrews, right? They haven't entirely, could be the Israelites. We certainly don't know when the Israelites became Jews. The greatest historians in the world, of which I am not one. Nobody, Shia Cohen, one professor of ancient Israel and ancient Jewish identity at Harvard he would he says listen we know the Israelites broke into tribes and we know that one of the tribes was Judah and we know that Judah produced Judeans and we know that tribe of Judah engulfed some of the other tribes and some of the other tribes have been lost to history but first we're not even sure if Jew came from Judean we're not sure whatsoever and we're not sure when that shift happened he says give or take five six hundred years all right, we also don't know when in the Bible you are a Hebrew, right? We talk about the Bible as if the Jews, but there's no Jews in the Bible. There's Hebrews and Israelites. You, it was entirely patrilineal. It was through your father, right? In, in Jewish, the dominant discourse among Jews today uh, is matrilineal, Just the, despite the fact the Reform Movement in 1980 started saying both. But the dominant discourse is still matrilineal. Well, we don't know when patrilineal became matrilineal in the dominant Jewish discourse. So there's pieces of the Jewish, dominant Jewish narrative that I'd say people know that the exodus happened, but whether or not they believe it actually happened is a total different question. So I, I think we hold these, these truths, in fact, in, in dissonance simultaneously. And I think we do it as people in the world. We know of certain things that could happen to us, and we still walk out the door in the morning. Right? I, I think that's how humans live. We, we hold different things in distinction and contradistinction to one another at the same exact time.
2: Um, in the one photo in the beginning where you had all of the different modifiers, what, or what I, I feel like the word race is superfluous and shouldn't really be there because the, the common denominator is the word Jew, but then before that, when you say race, then you're talking. Every, they all have modifiers. You're an Ethiopian Jew, or you're an Iraqi Jew, or you're an American Jew. And so the word race, and now we saw all the pictures where if you define race as skin color, then that, that throws that out too, because there's so many of them.
1: So if we look up race in the dictionary, it might say ethnicity. And if we look up ethnicity, it might say race, and it might say culture. And, and I know this literally because I did it. <laughs> Right, we don't have a baseline definition of race or ethnicity or culture and yet you and I can have a conversation we probably have a similar definition, semi-amorphous but kind of, and I I know exactly what you're saying so part of me is like, yeah, I get it but on the other hand, some people if we said that your Jewishness could be traced genetically right, are we going to say is that racial or is that biological I don't know Certainly in American history, racial and biological have been one and the same for most of American history in terms of the so-called one-drop rule with African Americans, in terms of Native American identity. Um, in terms of the, the law of return, the first law in the books in the state of Israel to define a Jew, there was a lot of controversy when the law of return was first passed in 1950 that defines a Jew based on if one of your four grandparents is Jewish. because Again, it didn't take a genius to connect the dots. That's how the Nazis did it. And you have, I have it quoted somewhere in the book, of a Supreme Court justice saying, this is pretty problematic that we're using that definition for a Jew. Now, if one of your grandparents is, that, to me that's some sort of genetic or hereditary or you could say racial. So it, it depends on how we're defining that term. But I, I understand the discomfort with the term um, and... But I also think it's a term that, it's another one of these ideas that race is is completely a construct, and it is dependent on the perceived nature of pigmentation in one's skin more than anything else in America. And yet, you know, if Barack Obama was lighter skinned, would he have been able to publicly be, and and, uh, black, and if if Michelle was lighter-skinned, right? There's been lots of stuff written about this, of his blackness relative to his partners. What if she had been white? What if she had been really light-skinned? So I I think there's a lot to your question, and I I think it's a good question. Yeah? A
0: couple of things. One is, Walfi Kaplan's daughter had a Torah and that's almost 100 years ago. So it, it, it didn't just start, you know,
1: Right, the conservative movement. It started. That was movement. I, I understand. No, no, there was no Reconstructionist movement when Mordechai Kaplan's daughter was Bat Mitzvah, and she didn't really have a Bat Mitzvah in the way that we understand Bat Mitzvahs today. And right, thankfully, uh, and she wasn't even. I don't even know what's going on there. Um, she, actually, she, it, she, and that was the first Bat Mitzvah we know of in the United States history, but. So it wasn't, so we know even in the 1800s there were bat mitzvahs in in Italy, and I can point you to the the source I uncovered in writing this book, I didn't know that either. But in 1980 with my sister, that was the first time a woman read from the Torah at that particular conservative synagogue, and that was becoming the norm in conservative synagogues in 1980, but not in the Jewish world writ large. There were no female rabbis even yet yeah they they've been persecuted in a very different way than Jews have been persecuted in other countries uh, and that picture of the of uh, Jin Guangzhou in in 2012 of Right, that's having a certain freedom that now he doesn't even have anymore that he had at a certain window in time in Chinese history. Yeah? I'm a little confused by your thesis. Sure. You seem to be somewhat critical that what
2: is now is not reflective of what was in the past. It it didn't reflect everything that happened in the past. But on your last slide right here, you're saying when speaking about the future... uh, don't we have to look at what is now
1: if we're looking to the future? But what, what is now is not, well, first off, what is now, I, I think is, I visualize it in terms of, um, I think it's calculus back in high school, where you, you have that sine and cosine curve that goes up and down, and then you, you pick a line, a point, and this tangent thing. So, Trig, okay, I, I, something, we're going back 25 years. well played Um, so that's I'm saying we're picking a point in time and yes so if this is the majority so then should we teach the majority I'd I'd say I get it I, I get why Jewish history is commonly Ashkenazi centric if 60 out of 100 Jews are Ashkenazi but by that rationale if in 50 years Ashkenazi Jews are 20% or whatever, then, all right, so then we should only choose 20% of Jewish history should be Ashkenazi. I'm not saying it should be based on that. I'm saying the Jewish story is so much richer than one piece of it. Um, And I'd say that when we teach about and we have an American centric and Israel centric perspective, I'm trying to explain why. And I think all of these things make sense. That said, that's not not even close. And it's only, it's only a small piece. It'd be as if we, well, the dominant way that American history is commonly taught is not taking into account the underbelly of Native Americans and African Americans. It's still pretty fringe at public schools, private schools in California and wherever. Um, and I'd say that one way to really move beyond history and forward is to deal with the past in a a more concrete way and recognize and even acknowledge the past. Um, And we Jews have been very good at teaching about and creating structures and teaching about the Jewish people, but I'd say that we're still limited in how we're doing it. And I'd say that we really need to be much more expansive in, in our notion of what it means to be a Jew today Previously, and then that I think can reframe what it means to be a Jew in the future.
2: Um, so you talked about how the different Ashkenazi groups kind of merged, and now there's no distinction. Like trends for the future, is that same kind of thing going to happen between Ashkenazi, Party, Mizrahi, all that stuff? Is there going to be
1: a more of a blending of all? So the only the only place where studies on that have been done is really the state of Israel where you have intra-Jewish biological cross-fertilization and it's becoming much more normal in Israel. In America and, and I've talked to a number of sociologists, some of the the big names that you may have heard of of why when studies are done on the American Jewish communities by American Jews virtually there's no distinctions across Ashkenazi, Sefardi, Mizrahi, African American, there's almost no studies that take all of those things into account, and they homogenize all Jews together, and some of the reasoning for that might be, um, well, there's all sorts of possibilities for why that is, but the intra-Jewish pairing off in America is not nearly as common as it is in the state of Israel, I'd say for somewhat obvious reasons in terms of proximity of people to one another in a Jewish majority state, and also 8 out of 10 Jews in America are Ashkenazi. Um, so, you know, I don't, I don't know what the future holds in, in that sense. I think the, the most important piece in, in say, Chapter 12, f- futures, has to do with, well, how do we talk about Jewish futures if we don't have a baseline definition of a Jew? And really, do we need a baseline definition? Right? That's contradictory. I understand that. But, you know, Marshall Mayer, a famous rabbi in New York City, um, among other places, was asked in 1990 about, you know, a a study had just gone out about the survival of the Jewish people, and he was asked what he thinks about it, and he said, survival is what, right? I think the more important question, and this doesn't, I'm not addressing that to you, like, you should have asked, no, I'm saying, when we talk about Jewish futures, I really think, all right, well, first off, we can't talk about Jewish futures if we don't know what we're talking about Jews, but suppose you have a really expansive definition of a Jew like, frankly, my own. So, okay, then we can move beyond, like, the definition. You can say, okay, survive as what? What do we want the Jewish community to look like? And to me, this gets back to your question. I want it to look like what it actually is, right? Which is people all over the map, literally and figuratively. Um, And to... Bagels are wonderful, and kugel is great, and kasha, and da 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 da, da, da. I love it. Matzah ball soup, we do it in my house, right? But matzah ball soup is one form of Jewish soup, and kube soup, even though I'm a vegetarian, is awesome, right? And, and there's dominant tropes, and Jews are no different than any other group, that there's dominant ways we teach things. That, that's normal to humans, but because the Jewish history is so rich and diverse, and has been going on for so long that I think we need to do a better job of integrating that diversity into the story of what it means to be a Jew that we're telling ourselves today.
0: All right. Thank you so much. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture